Good morning, church. I'm glad you're here. Okay, I'm going to read you Joshua 8.1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go to Ai. I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys can be seated. Students, have a good time in class. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Ryan Owens. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, you got to meet Kelsey earlier. She is our communications director. Um, our other pastor, Brian, is helping with uh, the kids' ministry this morning. Um, but I just wanted to, to welcome you, say thank you for being here. I also wanted to take a minute to celebrate um, a victory for the gospel uh, in the overturning of Roe v. Wade Uh, ruled by the Supreme Court. This is not a political victory. This is not a victory for Republicans. This is not a victory for conservative America. This is a victory for the gospel, the image of God in the life of his church, in the life of his people, in the life of those unborn even. At all stages of life, the image of God is a gospel issue. And so we'll celebrate We'll celebrate that our our government has decided this is not up to us to decide. And so we continue to pray, all right? The the victory of Roe v. Wade being overturned is not the end. We still have things to pray for because now it's a state's issue. And so now we pray for our states. Now we pray that the gospel would prevail in all of our states. So let's take a minute right now and let's pray. God, we come before you grateful we come before you celebrating the win for the gospel, that your image given to your people is a priority of yours, it's a priority of ours, and it has um, been given space to be priority in this nation. God, would you help us to untether our Christianity from our politics and simply see that this is a gospel victory. And God, we ask that you would show your grace and your mercy to the leadership of the states who now have the choice to accept and uplift your image given to all people or to reject that. God, we ask that you would do a miracle in the states of America and that you would, you'd bring your Imago Day forward as a, a top priority in all of the states? Would you um, abolish abortion across the board? And God, we call the church, um, you call the church forward to respond to this, that now we have an opportunity to love the mothers and the babies who may have gotten an abortion before, or maybe who have in the past, and you call us forth now to love them and bring them in to increase our efforts to adopt and foster, to be a place that welcomes instead of judging. God, would you make your church that people? 
We thank you for your son. We thank you for salvation. Would you remind us of what he's done for us so that that can motivate us to love our city better? We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. Um, Well, uh, the book of Joshua began uh, with God comforting and instructing his people. In Joshua chapter 1, God tells Joshua, the leader of Israel, and so therefore he tells all of Israel, do not be afraid. And we see um, that that comes, the the command for, for Joshua and Israel to not be afraid comes immediately following Israel experiencing incredible loss. They lost a great leader in Moses. They lost 40 years of living life in a certain way in the wilderness. Not only that, they lost an entire generation while they waited. And God responds to their loss. God responds to their waiting. God responds to all the emotions that they were feeling by beginning Joshua 1 saying, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you because they have a pretty scary future coming ahead as they enter into the land of promise. And so we look at Joshua 7 last week and we saw the incredible amount of loss that Israel experienced yet again because of sin. And real quick, loss does not always happen because you have sinned. Loss is just an effect of sin. Death, loss, tragedy, is just an effect of, of the brokenness of nature. And so we see here uh, Israel does sin, and it does lead to loss. They lose 36 men, 36 fathers, 36 brothers, 36 sons with stories and families. They lose 36 men who weren't supposed to die through the whole battle. They lose a battle, an important battle, but they also, more importantly, lose this collective sense of identity, this collective sense of, of God-given righteousness and purity. They didn't lose it in reality. They, they lost it in practice. They lost their sense of it. And so in Joshua 8, God starts over the same way he started the book after tremendous loss. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. And I I feel like it's it's pretty timely, Um, it's not a coincidence, that we would be in Joshua. I know that loss and fear and tragedy is is ubiquitous throughout human history. But we find ourselves, in the past two and a half years, experiencing tremendous loss, every single one of us, and looking ahead and wondering, what else do we have to lose? It doesn't look good ahead of us, does it? So we've got tremendous loss behind us and great fear ahead of us, just like Joshua and Israel. And so I want you to hear God say to you this morning, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, because I'm with you wherever you go. God promises to Joshua, God promises to Israel, and God promises to us that he will restore. And he begins with relationship our relationship to him, and he also promises to restore all things. 
And so um, let's just take a minute and consider what is it behind us that we've lost? And how did that make us feel? What is it ahead of us that makes us afraid, that makes us angry, that makes us sad? I want to give you permission to feel this morning because emotions are human. And guess what? You're human. So you're allowed to feel. You're allowed to be an emotional being. And you're not only allowed to be an emotional being, it's good that you're an emotional being. God made you to be an emotional being. And God accepts you as an emotional being. So let's consider how does the last two and a half years, or even beyond that, tremendous loss has happened to all of us, regardless of the time. And as we reflect on that loss, we reflect ahead on the future. How does that make us feel? Our emotions are not something for us to suppress or control. Because they're part of our design, God has given us emotions in order to follow him. We feel like emotions are bad. We get the sense that they, they cause us trouble when we try to suppress or control them. Because inevitably, they end up controlling us. Instead, God has given them to us as a gift, as a way to come to him to submit and trust and follow Jesus. And so ask yourself the simple, important questions. What am I feeling If you're feeling afraid, what am I afraid of? If you're feeling sad, why am I sad? It's not, it's not ultimately helpful just to feel what you feel, but to get down into the root of it. Feeling what you feel is a great place to start. It's very human. You're allowed to be human. But let's, let's go deeper. Let's follow Jesus with our emotions. And so as we progress through the sermon this morning, I want to encourage you to maybe take a mental note or write down any emotions that you're feeling currently as I'm, I'm talking about this and kind of stirring this up. But we're going to go through Joshua 8, where God is responding to chapter 7. God responds to Joshua and Israel's fear and shame and regret. And so you might have those emotions stirred up too. And so I'd encourage you to make note of those, either mentally or uh, write them down. Joshua 8 begins with the word and. And because it begins with the word and, it's a, a, a connection to chapter 7. Joshua 7 and 8 relate to one another. And you can look at this at the beginning of, of most of the chapters. You'll see, if it, if it says now... It's, okay, we're starting over. We're starting something new. It's a new story. If it says then or therefore or and, it's a continuation of what came before. And so like I just mentioned, Joshua 7, we had tremendous loss. And in Joshua 8, God responds. In Joshua 7, the leader of Israel and all of Israel are mourning. They're angry. They're confused. And God leads them through a process of confession in purification, and then in chapter 8, we see 
that God responds to, to Israel's sin, God responds to Israel's loss and all their emotions. So how does God respond? Well, like we've said before, the book of Joshua being the first book of the prophets, the category of prophets within the Hebrew scriptures, is meant to tell us some fundamental things about who God is and how he is to us. And so as we look through Joshua 8, who is God and how does he act to us? Well, Joshua 8 reminds his people, God's people. He reminds Israel, the ancient original readers of this text, and um, the Holy Spirit had us in mind as well. He knew that we would read this eventually, and it tells us the very same thing. Joshua 8 reminds us that we belong to a God who restores. This week and next week, as we continue in chapter 8 next week, we will focus on that statement. We belong to a God who restores. This week will be restoration. God restores, and what does he restore? His first and top priority is that God restores our relationship with him. And that influences the beginning of the statement, we belong. We belong to God. We're his people. And next week, when we go through Joshua renewing the covenant, we're going to focus in on our identity as God's people more. But this week, we have something very specific about God restoring our relationship with him. And he does that through how we feel. He responds to Joshua and Israel's emotions in a very specific way. Let's look at um, Joshua 8, 1 through 2, first two verses. Very important. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. And the Lord said to Joshua, remember last week uh, in chapter 7, it wasn't until verse 10 that the Lord spoke to Joshua. And so we're clued in immediately that Joshua is in prayer at the beginning of chapter 8. Relationship restored. We also see God calls back to the initial calling that he gave Joshua and all of Israel. Do not be afraid. I'll be with you. Do not be afraid. God's saying that is not saying you're not allowed to be afraid. We interpret it that way because I think we don't let ourselves be afraid. We don't let ourselves feel what we feel often. And so when we read Joshua 8, we impose our worldview on Scripture to say, when God says, do not be afraid, we actually hear, you're not allowed to be afraid. When God says in Joshua 8 and in Joshua 1 and throughout Scripture, throughout the book of Joshua, what he's saying by saying, do not be afraid, is you don't have to be afraid. He's not forcing him to stop. He's actually giving him a solution. And what's the solution? It ties back to Joshua 1. I'm here. I'm near. I'm for you. I'm with you. Don't be afraid 
because I'm here to bring you peace. God is near and he's in control. And in chapter 7, we see the loss of lives. We see the loss of um, 36 men, 36 fathers, brothers, husbands, friends. We also see the loss of an entire family because of sin. And this loss leads Joshua in verse 7 to wonder if God is even with them anymore. Joshua is afraid that God has abandoned them. And so if you're taking note of the emotions that are stirred up throughout this message and throughout Joshua 8, have you ever felt like God has abandoned you? It certainly is a part of my story, feeling like God at some point or another has abandoned me. And it wasn't true, but it's a very real and present feeling. When it feels like the world, my world is just falling apart and answers aren't coming, solutions aren't coming, peace isn't coming, it's getting more and more uncomfortable. Where's God? Is he even here? As we see in chapter 8, God responds specifically to this feeling of fear and abandonment. But Joshua also confesses that he feels shame. God, is your name even glorified in our, our nation? Will your name be glorified in this land? Or do we blow it? He feels regret and doubt. And so one of the ways that God responds in chapter 8 is by not just giving them victory over Ai, because he does that. He's actually gone before Israel and already given them into their hand. It's not only victory, it's how the victory is won. Let's look at uh, verses four through seven in Joshua eight. This will explain a little bit for us. And he commanded them, so Joshua heard from the Lord and he commanded Uh, the army of Israel. Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and the people who are with me will approach the city from the other side. And when they come out against us, just as before, that's important, we shall flee before them. And they'll come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city For they'll say, they're fleeing from us just as before, referring to chapter 7. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Did you notice how God is planning victory for Israel? It's not just a simple battle, go in and take it, you're big enough, like the spies had initially said. It's also not like Jericho, where God commands them to walk around and then this incredible divine miracle happens and the walls fall down and Israel wins automatically. It's still a divine miracle, but it's different. It's meant to communicate something specific and different as a response to their failure. God actually takes the failure and the loss of Israel and turns it into victory because that's who God is. He takes loss and turns it into victory. He takes death 
and turns it into life. This is not the first time we've seen God do this. We see it in the life of Job, a man who loses literally everything except his survival. And by the end of the book, God restores everything and more to Job. It's not the same. He still experienced loss, but he experienced the comfort of God in relationship. And God restored all things back to Job. We also see it in, uh, at the end of the book of Genesis, the very first book of Scripture. It's incredibly important that we understand how Genesis ends because it tells us how we're reading the rest of Scripture. Genesis ends with Joseph, the man whose brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous of him. They intended for him to die or at least be lost forever. Instead, God puts him in second in command in the most powerful nation in the world. And when he reunites with his brother because they're in trouble, they're in famine. They come to Joseph for help, not knowing that it's Joseph. Their relationship ends up being restored. He reveals himself and says, hey, I'm your brother. And, and their dad dies, and so they think, oh, he's going to kill us now, definitely, because we sold him into slavery. That's what any sane person would do. In Genesis 50, the last paragraph of the first book of Scripture that tells us how to read the rest says, what you meant for evil... God used for good. That's who God is. And so we see in Joshua 8, God plans a victory for Israel based on the way they lost the, the battle the first time. So Joshua goes in to Ai with his few thousand men just like before. The army comes out to fight them. They flee just like before. But then we see something specific, very peculiarly specific, like it's meant to catch your attention in verse 18. Joshua 8, 18 says, then the Lord said to Joshua, no, this is the second time that the Lord speaks to Joshua, emphasizing the nearness of relationship. The Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that's in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So note, Joshua and his army are far away from Ai. And where's the other side of the army? On the opposite side of the city. Can they see each other? No. But God commands Joshua to do this strange, lift up your, your javelin, his battle staff. Just like all of Joshua, just like the vast majority of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, it's coming from, it's saying something in light of what comes before. This moment calls us back to Exodus 13 and 14. The people of God, Israel, fleeing slavery from Egypt. By the power of God, they're saved from slavery. They're in the wilderness, millions of Israelites, and they come before endless waters. They're standing on the shore of the Red Sea and they turn around because there's nowhere else to go and they see the entire Egyptian army coming out to kill them. And so they're trembling. 
They're in fear. They're afraid. Let's look at Exodus 14. I'll start in 13, but, but it's verse 14 that is probably my favorite verse in at least the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, maybe all of Scripture. I'll read 13. And Moses, with a prophetic voice to the people, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. Sound familiar? Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. And here it is, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. You belong to a God who restores. You belong to a God who saves and redeems. In this moment in battle, Joshua lifts up his battle staff because immediately after Moses says that, God commands Moses to lift up his walking staff towards the Red Sea. And he performs this miracle where the waters split and all of Israel cross through on dry land. And as Israel crosses, God commands Moses to point his staff at the waters again. And from both sides, the waters crush God's enemies, the Egyptian army. And so as Joshua lifts his battle staff, his javelin up towards Ai, the army of God crashes in and destroys the enemies of God in the city of Ai. It's a replaying of the salvation of God, reminding them that he is their God and they are his people. We belong to a God who restores. Where there was once death, now there is life. Where there was once loss, now there is victory. I want to also point out in verse 2 of chapter 8, because Joshua's pretty explicit, right? Whenever God commands Israel to go into a city and, and destroy it, he says, uh, and, and don't take anything for yourself. Devote it all to destruction. But we notice in chapter 8, there is no devoted things. God actually instructs them this time that they get to take the spoil. They get to plunder the city. And it's a reference to Deuteronomy 20 that's meant to remind us that God's plan is to not wholesale wipe out all people, but to offer an opportunity. And so we remember Rahab in chapter 2, she repented and turned to God. Uh, Joshua 8.2 is a reference back to Deuteronomy 20 when God said, um, destroy the armies, but take the women and the children as your plunder. And so we see God restore a bit, in some way, a bit of the family of God by welcoming in the outsiders. We see God acting to restore relationships, to restore what was meant to die, but he restores the women and children of Ai to life. There's still loss. God doesn't ignore the loss, but he offers new life in them because 
the priority for God in restoring all things begins with the restoration of relationship. He had a plan for all the people in Canaan that made themselves God's enemies. He had a plan to offer them a restored relationship with him by welcoming them into his family. And because our relationship with God is his first and most important priority, he saved his most miraculous, wonderful work for his son, Jesus. The most incredible miracle, the most incredible act of love and restoration was saved for the death of his own son. Because we all deserve to end up like the army of Ai. We all deserve to end up like Jericho, like Achan. But through the victory of Jesus on the cross, we're all welcomed into the family, like Rahab. We're all restored, offered a restored relationship with God. And so, just like Moses lifted his staff for salvation for the people, just like Joshua lifted his staff for the victory over God's enemies, God lifts up his son on the cross to die for us who deserve to die. The sinless man, innocent, fully man, fully God, received the penalty of our sin and our brokenness. And it was in his outstretched arms that God defeated his enemies, Satan, sin, and death. In those same outstretched arms that he welcomes us all into his family. Saved, redeemed, and restored. And now, our hope, the only hope that we have for new life is in the work in the life of Jesus. When we talk about new life, we talk about salvation, we talk about eternity, a lot of times we only associate that with what happens after we die. But Jesus tells us, the scriptures tell us, that eternal life is meant for us now. By thinking that it's something ahead of us, we're missing out on eternity now. God's priority to restore our relationship means eternity happens when you say yes to Jesus. When you see him on the cross and you say, that's meant to be me, but he did that. And so we accept his sacrifice. We submit, we return from our sin to trust and follow him. Eternity happens now. And what that means is that we trust and follow Jesus now not as a way to get to heaven, because we have it. Our obedience and our following Jesus is not the test. It's the gift. And because God has restored our relationship with him through the life and the work of Jesus, we follow Jesus now. He's our rabbi. He's our teacher We're his disciples, his apprentices. We learn how to live in relationship, right relationship with God through Christ. And so we trust and we follow him. And just like Joshua 
7 and 8, God responds to the emotions and the circumstances of Joshua and Israel. By following Jesus with our emotions, we can see how God is working to restore our circumstances in our lives, if for no other reason than that we would be in closer relationship with him. Because there's a lot of things in our a lot of things, a lot of stuff, uh, even a lot of people, which are not things and stuff, not objects. There's a lot in our life that will be restored. There's a lot in our life that just won't. But the thing that God has meant to restore indiscriminately is relationship. God might bring back to you what you've lost. He might not. He will bring you back in relationship with himself. The first beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. One way to read that and think about that is, it is better to be comforted by Jesus than to never have lost. The comfort of Jesus is better than avoiding grief. And so we take those emotions to him. And so uh, we're going to practice a prayer this morning. I call it the prayer of abiding. I feel like that's a little more descriptive of what it is. Traditionally, uh, it hasn't actually had a name, but then somewhere in modern history, we started calling it the welcoming prayer. So if you want to Google it, you're probably going to find the name, the welcoming prayer. I've kind of adapted it and given it my own flavor. We'll call it the prayer of abiding. It is not the only way to pray, but it is an ancient and a helpful way to pray. But before we get into practicing that, I want to um, open up communion, and so I want to invite the band up. And I'm opening communion now uh, because when I finish our prayer practice, I'm going to walk off stage and give you guys a time to, to take communion by yourselves, with your family, however you want, um, because communion is a reminder that we belong to a God who restores, right? Communion reminds us that once we were far off, but now we are brought near. Once we were dead, but now we are made alive. Once we were in sin, but now in Christ we are his righteousness. And so we remember that we belong to a God who restores through the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus and that one day he will come back and restore all things. So the celebration of our restored relationship in communion is meant for the church because we live in a restored relationship. So if you're not a Christian, what that means is that you're not in restored relationship. And so instead of taking communion with us this morning, I want to ask, would you please consider Jesus as the only way to be made right with God, the only way to be brought into this restored relationship. And trust and follow him. So let's walk through our prayer. We've got three movements. You can take notes. I'm gonna explain this quickly um, just so that we have something to work with. And then... Uh, once we get our heads wrapped around this practice, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna walk you through it. And this is something that, that I want you to take home and practice this week and, and definitely. Um, it's something that I've brought up before, 
It's just helpful to repeat it. So the prayer of abiding has three movements. First, we accept. Then we allow. And finally, we abide. So we accept. We accept the reality of our emotions. We accept that we are emotional beings. We accept that we're designed as emotional beings and therefore our emotions are given to us by God and he accepts us as emotional beings. So that first movement is us accepting our emotional lives, but also being aware that God accepts our emotional lives. There's freedom. So we accept and then we allow. We allow God into our emotions. We allow ourselves to be open to God. And that's on purpose because often we try to hide. I mean, it's in Genesis 3. Immediately after sin, what do Adam and Eve do? What do we do when we sin? We hide. And so we either hide our entire selves and we kind of run away from God, expecting him to push us away or expecting him to have pulled away from us. We allow God to be near because there is no hiding. He already knows and he's already near. So whatever um, your fear, whatever your sadness, your anger, your shame, he knows. It's for us to make the movement to allow him in. And from the presence of of Jesus with us, we then abide. We simply abide. It's frustratingly simple. To abide simply means to remain. And by abiding, we confess we are not God. I don't have the right to change my circumstances as a response to my emotions. And so we don't judge our emotions. We don't analyze them. We don't force change upon our circumstances as a way of therapy for our emotions. We simply abide in Jesus and confess that he is present and he is in control. We do not let our emotions control us, but we also don't let them hide from us. When we abide, we confess that we trust Jesus to restore us as his people and that someday he will restore all things. And so let's take a moment, let's practice this now. Accept, allow, abide. So whatever it was in the beginning when we were talking about loss, we were talking about the future and the fear that's ahead, or the sadness. Whatever you felt like you've lost in the past that has caused you to be afraid, that's caused you to be angry, Remember that. Whatever emotions were stirred up through the sermon, um, abandonment, shame, take those emotions and accept them as they are. Just simply accept them. We can close our eyes. You can get on your knees. You can put your head in your hands, however you want to do it. But take those feelings, take that, one feeling and just accept that it's there. Accept that you are not defined by your emotions, but your emotions are given to you to follow Jesus. 
They're a part of your humanity and you're allowed to be human. Accept your emotions. And now allow God to be with you. Meditate on the presence of Jesus in this room, in you specifically as an individual. Meditate on his presence. If you want to imagine that he's walking into the room and you open the door and let him in. Or maybe it'll be helpful to do a breath prayer. Breathe in, God with me. Breathe out, God for me. God with me. God for me. Allow God to be with you. And finally, abide in Jesus. Take hold of those feelings, those emotions that you've accepted, that you've allowed God to be aware of and present to. And confess the power and goodness of Jesus to be at work for you. That in your weakness, he is strong. Abide in Jesus. And as you take communion, confess that Jesus has restored our relationship with him, that one day he will restore all things. There will be no more fear There will be no more sadness. There will be no more shame, no more abandonment because you belong to a God who restores.